It's been called the greatest theft in history, followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. We're talking about the Nazis' passion for collecting all the art and bringing it together, destroying art they didn't like, and collecting art they did like, either in their own personal collections or in some giant great museum. And then, of course, the challenge presented the Allied powers to find this art and get it back to their proper places safely and in one piece. And a man who has done a lot to bring light to this exciting story and to document it in his books is Robert Edsel. And Robert Edsel joins us today to talk about his his newest book called The Monuments Men. Robert, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Now, you've spent years getting into this. You've you've co-produced the documentary film The Rape of Europa. You wrote a fascinating book, which we've talked to you earlier about, called Rescuing Da Vinci. And today you've written this new book called Monuments Men, which it sort of turns it a little bit into a thrilling, suspense-filled story. And you've almost made this history a, a fascinating novel as well. First of all, get us up to speed just on the, the big picture, the greatest theft in history, followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. Well, Adolf Hitler had this ambition to build the world's greatest museum in his hometown of Linz, Austria. And, of course, the greatest museum in the world would have to have the greatest museum treasures. And they weren't all in Germany. So a subplot of the war was to steal the greatest works of art from these countries that were being invaded. They had lists of works that they intended to remove before the invasions even took place. This was premeditated looting on a scale the world had never seen before. And a group of museum directors, curators, and art historians, artists, and architects in the United States shortly after Pearl Harbor, recognized the United States was going to have to get involved in this war and at risk was destroying the greatest cultural treasures of Western civilization in the course of combat. Of course, at the time, they didn't really realize the extent of the theft. And they were called Monuments Men. They volunteered for service, average age about 40 years old. And this new book on the Monuments Men, for the first time ever, tells the story through their letters home written to loved ones during combat, and the incredibly exhilarating and terrifying experiences they went through going into salt mines and caves and castles looking for some of the millions of works of treasures, paintings by Leonardo da Vinci, sculpture by Michelangelo that were stolen by the Nazis. And it is an adventure thriller because that's what they went through. Now, you write about how during the war the group was small. I mean, I think it peaked at like 60 people. And then after the war, it became a bigger operation with up to 350 people. So this story goes on after the end of World War II. It does. In fact, the story is still going on today, as you pointed out, within a month or so after the landings in northern Europe and D-Day in Normandy, there were only about a dozen monuments officers responsible for protecting all of northern Europe, churches, museums, uh, important structures, and then, of course, trying to find the works of art that had been stolen by the Nazis. At the end of the war in May 1945, they were up to about 60 or so in all of Europe. But as the war came to a conclusion, they had in more than a thousand hiding places paintings, sculpture, stained glass, church bells from cathedrals throughout Europe that were located. And it placed them in an incredible predicament trying to figure out what do you do when you find these museum quality works hidden in places underground? How do you go about getting them back to the countries from which they were stolen? And that's a saga that continues to this day. Now let's do this uh, little adventure of trying to get into Hitler's mind. I mean, he was possessed with this idea to create the biggest art museum ever. And it was in his humble hometown in Austria on the Danube River called Linz. And I learned from reading your book that he actually had art scholars traveling before the war, inventorying stuff that would ultimately be the plunder of the war. 
That's right, Rick. The museum directors in Germany and some of the curators were pressed into service to make these lists of works of art. They had all sorts of rationale for why they weren't really stealing them. Some of them had Germanic origins. In any event, they had these lists. They intended to remove them. And works of art such as the Chartereski paintings, the great Leonardo da Vinci, Lady with an Ermine, Rembrandt's Good Samaritan and Raphael's Portrait of a Young Man were stolen from the Chartereski Museum in Krakow, Poland, within a month of the invasion. They hmm. didn't go to the museum where these works of art were supposed to be hanging. They went to the country estate where they'd been hidden because their intelligence was so precise they knew exactly where the paintings were. I'm so fascinated in this story to me because I love the art of Europe, and I went decades without realizing the peril that all the great cultural wonders that we enjoy today as travelers went through just in uh, the lifetime of our parents, you know. When you write about how Hitler never got out of Germany and Austria much earlier in his life, but then he finally went down to Rome and to Florence. And he then started with his architect buddy, Albert Speer, thinking of Berlin as being the new Rome and Linz, his birthplace, being the new Florence. And how he was That's right. psychologically vindicated after being rejected from the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, where he wanted to be an artist, right? And then he would get back at them by building the greatest cultural center just upstream in Linz. He intended to diminish Vienna's cultural influence and make Linz the cultural capital of Europe as a revenge for having been rejected from school. And I lived in Florence for five years, so it's a somewhat a terrifying thought to imagine Hitler wandering through the hallways of the Uffizi Museum, muttering under his breath that how enthusiastic he was about seeing these great works of art. An artist among artists was his perspective. And of course, Mussolini's wandering behind him thinking, you know, I'm so tired of seeing all these paintings because Mussolini, ironically, being Italian, had no interest in these works of art. I love the image you paint in your book of Hitler going through the museum so excited and greedy and Mussolini kind of going, I just want a plate of pasta. Let's get out of here. Well, you make such a great point earlier about the risk of these works of art. I mean, when you consider Rose Vallon, who I believe uh, certainly, I don't know if any of us can name uh, the greatest woman who was a heroine during World War II. We always focus so much on men, but I think she might well be the person, this extraordinarily brave French woman that worked in the Jeux de Pomme Museum located in the Tuileries Garden across from the Place de la Concorde in Paris, that worked under the eyes of the Nazis for four years without them knowing that she understood German making lists of the works of art that she saw that the Nazis had stolen that were passing through this museum. And she even made a catalog entry one day in her secret notes in 1943 that said the paintings were slashed at the Louvre storage area, have been brought back to the Jeux de Pomme, an entire truck full, approximately five to 600 works of art, and they were burned from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the museum garden under German surveillance. And these were paintings by Matisse, Picasso, and other important modern artists that are beloved in the world today. Wow. So Jennifer in in, uh, San Francisco emailed us, and she asked exactly about this, uh, Robert. She said, what about Monuments Women? Your book is called Monuments Men. Were there any, and uh, was it indeed only men involved? And here you're saying that one of the heroes of this movement was the woman who was in charge of the inventory at the Jeux de Pomme, which was a clearinghouse for all of this art. The Jeux de Pomme was uh, an area that's kind of separated from the Louvre, and so I think the Nazis felt like they would not necessarily have the watchful eye of all the people if they were trying to move things in out of the Louvre. And she was there in charge, basically the manager of the museum, keeping this secret inventory that she would go home. She had a fascinating memory and make notes of works of art, some of which were obvious that she recognized, like Vermeer's Astronomer, which can be seen in the Louvre today, many other works that she would track the shipping invoices numbers, and ultimately 
befriended one of our key monuments heroes. In fact, the fellow who's on the front cover photo of the book, Jim Rohrmer, who went on to become the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I love the shot of the, the GIs in the 1940s here. Our, our GIs over there, they've got their guns in their, in their holsters or nearby, but they're holding this art. So proud and so thankful that they were able to, to save that. I'm uh, Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsel. He founded the Monuments Men Foundation, designed to preserve the legacy of the heroic men and women who saved Europe's art. Robert Edsel has co-produced the documentary film Rape of Europa. He's written a book called Rescuing Da Vinci, and we talked with Robert uh, recently about this book, and uh, anybody who's interested in that extensive interview, it's available on our archives. And Robert's newest book is The Monuments Men, telling the story of the greatest theft in history followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. Rescuing Da Vinci, that tells the story with beautiful pictures and, and more of a history book. And this book almost reads more like a novel. Do these books complement each other or are they redundant? No, I think they're entirely complementary. Rescuing Da Vinci, you know, what do you do when you have a story that's of such enormous significance to World War II that's been overlooked by some historians uh, and has never really been told? It's something that got lost in the fog of history. So my feeling was we need to tell the story using photographs at the beginning to let people see things that they know about, works of art like the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, the David by Michelangelo, but see them in a light that they've never seen them before, how they were protected during the war. And you write a fascinating chapter in your book about the salt mine at Altausee. We know it now from a sightseeing point of view, but historically, Altausee was one of the huge receptacles deep in the mountain where they would store all these art treasures, and then how one crate was filled not with more art but with explosives, and how these guys realized this really is a drama. But at the end of the day, what people connect with, what people want to know, is that people story. And in Monuments Men, we tell the story using these guys' letters home that no one's ever seen before. In fact, some of the families didn't believe me that they would have these things. So it was a real detective effort on our part to find them and allow the reader to be able to be there with them when they're going to a place like Altausay in a race against time as the Nazis are planting these mines and explosive devices to destroy a cave that was filled with more than 10,000 works of art, including sculpture by Michelangelo, the Bruges Madonna, which you know about from Bruges, Belgium, uh, Vermeer's astronomer and his artist studio, which is in Vienna at the Kunsthistorische Museum, and so many other beloved works of art. William's on the phone in Miami. William, thanks for your call. Oh, hello. How are you gentlemen doing today? Doing well, thanks. Excellent. Uh, I read Rape of Europa a couple years ago after I think uh, Mr. Edsel was on the show. And uh, I was just, after you know, seeing that and knowing what we know from the experience of World War II, why was that more done to safeguard Iraqi art treasures uh, during the invasion of uh, Baghdad? It's a fantastic question, and it's something I do address in The Monuments Men in the final chapters. It's really what's motivated my telling of this story, both to recognize these great heroes, but to preserve their legacy, because in my opinion, as I seem to indicate yourself, it's unforgivable that our nation didn't know the history of these great men and women and the legacy that they left us on how to protect cultural treasures during combat. And in Iraq, I don't think uh, from the leadership down, people appreciated the importance of the word patrimony, the emotions that are charged in that word among countries and peoples throughout the world. They value these treasures. They expect other people, whether they like them or not, to respect them. And I think the sad part is so many men and women in uniform from this country 
would absolutely love to have protected these things before the conflict was consummated and to do everything they could do to try and mitigate the damage. But they have to be given orders. Someone has to give soldiers orders. They're not entrepreneurs. And they need to understand why these works of art are important, whether or not they are something that we appreciate. Respect for other people's culture is critical. So it was a horrible mistake and something that I think was a stain on our country that will take quite some time to overcome. And so I think the important way we educate our elected leaders and also military leaders is for them to understand that the great leaders, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, General Patton and Bradley, set these standards that during war we protect cultural treasures so much as war allows, and the Monuments Men were the instruments of that policy. Well, now that the damage has been done, do they have, a, like, modern monuments men looking for these? These things, are, I guess, are more like artifacts and the great paintings that were lost during World War II, and I guess they'd probably be hard to recover, wouldn't they? That, well, they, they, you're correct that they are artifacts, but they can be recovered. And today in the Army, there are cultural affairs officers that are kind of the modern-day monuments men uh, that are doing a great job in tracking down so many of these things and recovering them and returning them to Iraq. Of course, the problem is, as our parents taught us, first impressions count. And the first impression that was created in Iraq was that Americans don't understand this culture. They don't care about works of art that are Islamic. And that was horrible, horrible damage. And I, quite honestly, as important as these things are, think the damage that was done was far greater to the reputation of our country than it was necessarily to the works of art alone. And that's something that we always have to be sensitive to. Yeah, it just would have been so much easier to put a couple guards at the museum entrance there when they were invading. And Can I ask you one, one World War II question? Sure. Do you think they're ever going to find the Bellini, Madonna, and Child? And is there any, is there any trail on that? I think many of these works of art that were portable will surface in the course of time. My father, who was a World War II veteran in the Pacific, died last year. He was 81 years old, so he was a younger end of World War II veterans. But over the next five to ten years, so many of the people that fought in World War II will pass in all countries. And as they do, I think in attics and in basements, hanging on walls, things are going to surface that people don't necessarily know were value. They might have been taken as a trophy of war without any pernicious intent. And the kids are going to inherit in these things. And I think that we all have a front row seat to watch this exciting chapter of World War II be written. And I think the story about the Monuments Men is a story which will allow everybody to understand what's at stake here and how we can all participate in finishing the job the Monuments Men started many years ago. Well, that did happen in the case of Lieutenant Joe uh, Mader right in Texas. When he died, his relatives uh, got the things he stole from that church in Germany and liberated stole, whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, The case that you refer to was an American GI that uh, took something that wasn't something that was liberated or trinket of war. He stole an important work of art out of a church in Germany, and that wasn't allowed then. I mean, General Bradley at one point in time issued a magnificent order that said, we're a conquering army, not a pillaging army. And I mm -hmm. think that's been the policy of the military since then. If it's a sword or a flag, that's one thing. But these important works of art don't just belong to Germany, the United States. They belong to countries of all nations. And that's why travel is so important, I think, for people to understand the commonalities that we have and affection that we have for these important works of art that represent the origins of all civilization. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the, the relatives actually collect on that from that church? Uh, I mean, they actually pretty the, much ransomed it back. The handling of that in 1981 was really cutting-edge case. It's the first prominent case that arose like that. The family did receive a payment. I can assure you that in the world in which we're in today, uh, the law has evolved to a point in time that would not occur. William, thanks for your call. we got to Thank run Thank you along. very much. Yeah. Enjoyable. Bye.
Robert, didn't they just find a Monet and a Renoir a couple years ago in somebody's safety deposit box? Yes, they did, Rick. In fact, that is something that I discuss again in the closing chapter of my book. Believe it or not, uh, there's still some Nazis or ex-Nazis out there. I'm not sure that I'm a believer that there is such a thing as an ex-Nazi in some of these hardcore cases, but Bruno Losa, who was the art advisor, one of the art advisors to Hermann Goering, he's actually in a photo in the doorway of the Jeu de Palme as Goering's exiting the building, a photo that we have in the Monuments Men book. He died a couple of years ago. He was 91, 92 years old, and sometime thereafter, there was a safety deposit box found in Switzerland, and much to uh, some people's surprise, there were some important Impressionist paintings that have been missing since the war located, and the effort to find the owners of those continues. So this story is something that we continue to read about every day. Of course, conflicts are going to continue to happen worldwide. And I think the story of the Monuments Men, even in these difficult uh, economic times, is such an uplifting story about why these middle-aged men that were accomplished, they had families, they had every reason in the world to not volunteer and go into combat to try and save these works of art, but they did. In fact, two lost their lives. And I think it's a story that's an uplifting story and certainly an incredible adventure and one I'm really excited to share with your listeners. In fact, when we think about Hitler's vision, Robert, for this uh, this German uber-museum, it's fascinating to know that, that Hitler was so obsessed with his art collection that in his will he makes almost no provision for the Reich, you know, his empire that he worked so hard to build, but he's just focused on his paintings. That's right, Rick. It's really incredible because I think it's been something that's terribly uh, underestimated by historians and other people that when he's a teenager, he's hugely impassioned to become an artist and be recognized as such, and he's devastated and humiliated over his rejection at art school. That's on the early side of his life. Uh, Less than 24 hours before he kills himself, he's dictating his will, and the one provision that he emphasizes so strongly is that the paintings that he collected in the course of his lifetime go towards this museum he always wanted to see built in Lynn. So he's absolutely obsessed with art from the early stages of his life to the latter stages, and I think that really underscores the challenge that these monuments men had to overcome in the course of their service. And just from a selfish sightseeing point of view, I'm so thankful I don't have to go to Linz. It's a dreadful little town on the Danube to see the greatest art of Europe. <laughs> I'm glad you said it, because <laughs> you're right. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. If you go to Linz, Hitler's birthplace, nobody wants to talk about Hitler there. And I can just imagine this little podunk town with all of the Mona Lisas and everything from every country in Europe. Robert Edsel, author of The Monuments Men, thank you so much for giving us an appreciation of the, the value to all of Western civilization for the patrimony and the art treasures of each of these countries, national heritage and the heroics that the Monuments Men showed as we get the art back in its rightful place. Thank you, Rick.